This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Danny McLean. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm Danny McLean, the library's writer in residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, I'm proud to welcome my friend and neighbor, Kenan T. West. He's an educator, poet, youth advocate, and hip-hop artist who has spent decades traveling the nation, speaking about issues at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and social justice. A graduate of Duke University, where he got his BA, the New School for Social Research, where he got a master's. He is the author of several books and hip-hop projects and is widely anthologized. He's also appeared in multiple documentaries at the intersection of hip-hop and black masculinity. Prior to joining Teach for America in 2014, Tenem served as inaugural faculty at Oakland School for the Arts, impacted educational outcomes as an English teacher and basketball coach at Cesar Chavez Public Charter High School for Public Policy, and more recently, as Director of Youth Services at Chicago Center on Halstead. A board member of the LGBT Institute located at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, Tenem was named one of 31 icons during LGBT History Month in October of 2015. He currently leads Teach for America's National LGBTQ Plus Community Initiative, advancing safer and braver classrooms for LGBTQ educators and students in grades pre-K through 12. Welcome, Tenem. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. So this is the first interview for the podcast that I've done that isn't taking place in the recording booth in the makerspace at the downtown branch. Um, I'm practicing social distancing. I just wonder if you'll set the scene for us. Where are you? Have you been able to, to stay, stay at home during these times? Yes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate, I guess, in a sense, to have a job that um, is much online. I do a lot of work, consultation, curriculum development, um, and, you know, other kinds of consultation online. And so my, my, my day-to-day doesn't require me to go into an office. Uh, Teach for America closed its offices pretty early in the game. Um, so I'm, I'm in my home office right now, um, you know, in Northside, um, a little bit of cabin fever. Uh, it was probably roughest week two. I think now I've kind of settled into this as kind of a new norm. Um, yeah. I do get out and try to walk. I've, I've, I passed your space a couple of times and just thought yeah. to wait, know if you're there or not. It just kind of, it's just been uh, helpful to sort of attach, reattach myself to the world outside because it can get a bit um, difficult to just be in, indoors all the time. I think, Previously, I, I worked indoors a lot. I worked at my home office a lot. But then at, after work, I could get outside and do things. Uh, so it's, it's very different when that's not the option, at least socially. Right. And so you mentioned walking. Um, you're, you're an organizer in many respects, but one of the, the ways that I 
feel your presence as a community organizer as you're always encouraging Northsiders to get out and walk together, look at local architecture. Um, so walking has been something, has been a practice for you that's helped you through these times. Do you have any other practices that have made quarantine easier? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I think reading a little bit more, I thought I would be binge on Netflix, which hasn't been the case. I've done a, a little bit more reading. Uh, a lot of rediscovering old music. So uh, mm. I'm a little bit of a jazz head. I've kind of returned to some of my my old favorite, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, just um, sort of digging through the crates and like, oh, I hadn't mm-hmm. listened to this in a long time. And, and that's been really refreshing. I think in some ways it was sort of um, urged by, you know, like D-Nice, uh, you know, doing mm-hmm. the quarantine uh, and with so many classics and music, and some of which I just hadn't heard in forever, and so just kind of like, oh, like you know, how do you create that for yourself? Um, I'm I'm a bit of an OG, and then I keep actual CDs. I even have a few cassettes, <laughs> so uh, that kind of makes it fun. And I think it sort of reminded me of the visceral, tangible nature of like music and collections. Um, I'm like proud that I have a CD collection now. Uh, I'd love to collect more vinyl. Um, I think, you know, faced with this time and what's going on, those um, artifacts, if you will, have become all the more precious to me. Uh, and it's yeah. connecting to listening to them. It's just been, in a, in a way, it's been kind of soothing and comforting. Yeah. You know, I was so excited when you mentioned Be Nice because um, that's also been just such a – what he's offering has been such an escape for me as well. But I think I made a noise that may have stepped on what you said. Can you just, for listeners who have not been introduced to all that D Nice is offering right now, can you just say um, a bit more about what uh, what you've been enjoying that he's been producing? Absolutely. So D Nice has been doing these quarantine. Uh, D Nice is actually part of the – uh, the uh, Boogie Down Productions crew from like back back in the day, early hip hop. Uh, he's been doing these quarantine parties, so just kind of creating opportunities as a DJ for people to kind of come together, enjoy music virtually, where they might otherwise be at an actual physical space. Uh, but I think these parties are just like great in the sense like people are connecting. Um, you know, there's a um, there's a book that I was thinking about, and I'm, 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 the, the name of the author is escaping me, but he talks about nationalism and this sort of like shared moment of people opening up the, the newspaper in the morning, and that sort of nationalism is defined by this moment that sort of characterizes a, a single action. And sort of, in my mind, like D-Nice and the sort of quarantine party, at least for a, a certain community of Americans, uh, potentially progressive Americans, <laughs> Um, we're all sort of engaging in this this moment together uh, from different places, different pl- parts in the country. And that's the kind of party you don't really get to have uh, and yeah. be a part of. That's what made it really I special. It. Like, I knew people on both coast, uh, in the Midwest, like, and all were just sort of like vibing to and, and sharing the energy together. I love that. And so if you're not already connected to D-Nice on Instagram, I really suggest that because that's where he's. Um, spinning and offering um, offering these parties. And I, is the book that you're thinking of, Imagine Communities, by Benedict Anderson? Yes. I, I, yeah. I was actually on my bookshelf to try to remember the author because it's actually, and I, I just had a brain lapse. But, yeah, it's Benedict uh, 
Anderson, uh, yes, Benedict's uh, Anderson, the right uh, Imagine Communities. Uh, yeah, that's exactly the book I was thinking about. Yeah, that's dope. That's that. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't made that connection, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, let's let's talk uh, about you and your connection to Cincinnati. So. Um, so you spent your early childhood here and then decided to return recently. Um, mm-hmm. And throughout your, life, throughout your life, you've lived in New York, D.C., Atlanta, Chicago, the San Francisco Bay Area, among other places. What made you decide to put down roots here uh, and in Northside more specifically? Right. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that you know, I had lived in a lot of the other major cities, um, and I've had a pretty big splash in a lot of those places. You know, I've been on covers of Chicago Reader and um, uh, the uh, what's the Atlanta rag that, that comes out? The um, I forget the name of it. Um, it's going to come to me at some point. I'm just like <laughs> having breakfast today. But yeah, so I've, I've you know I've, I've had these splashes in these other markets, and um, I think part of it was I. I do education conferences, national education conferences, and decided uh, uh, to host one in Cincinnati. We had hosted previous Midwest education summits that I do in Chicago and St. Louis. And so I said, like, like why not, like, try out Cincinnati? We have, a, you know, Teach for America here, and, and uh, it's where I'm from originally, so there's this kind of sentimental attachment to it. And when I came back, um, you know, there was, this discussion about an equity policy that Cincinnati Public Schools had created. There were discussions about city people on city council who identified openly as LGBT. There was um, there just seemed to be an energy of change. Um, I remember I forget the name of the ordinance that was here for a long time that um, basically prohibited people from protections for LGBTQ people. And I know a lot of people who are Cincinnatians who are like, I'm never going back there. Uh, I'm leaving. I can't move there. I can't, like, be in a city where that kind of thing is. You know, I think Cincinnati at one point was kind of proudly conservative. It was it was that city. And when I came back in 2017, I experienced the Cincinnati that seemed to be moving in a different direction. Um, you know, perhaps the burbs are a little more red, but the city seems to be you know, fairly stridently blue. Uh, and I think there are variations in that too. But uh, it wasn't the Cincinnati that I remember visiting. Certainly wasn't the one of my childhood. And there were things that were awkward, like going back to, uh, you know, I lived, my first address and residence was 1436 Race Street. So if you think about 14th and Race, uh, I'm just like, oh, wow, like it's very different. I didn't even recognize the area. Right. Um, so the the things you notice are like, hmm, that's different. Uh, and the things that are also promising, I think, with um, urban revitalization and whatnot, there's that sort of tipping point where it's nice that uh, a neighborhood gets to have a nice coffee shop, but then it sort of often goes well beyond that <laughs> to the point where it's not affordable for people or the people that were there get kicked out. So just a lot of mixed feelings about Cincinnati, but I also felt like, uh, I've lived in a lot of bigger cities. Atlanta traffic was just wearing on me. I was spending hours uh, a day in my car. <laughs> um, and I also, I turned 45 that year. And I think there was something about, like, being in my mid-40s that was like, I've hopped around a lot. I really want to set roots. And I knew Atlanta wasn't 
where I was going to do that. Um, and so I, um, yeah, made a decision to, after that conference and just having such a good experience here and it seeming like it was a mid-sized city, wasn't too big, wasn't too small. I had some connections here. I had some friendships here. Uh, literally the weekend after the conference came back to just, I said, let me just go back and just look at home. So I went to a bunch of open houses and the neighborhood that stood out to me was Northside in part. And I'll be really frank. It was, it was a neighborhood where I could imagine walking around at 11 o'clock PM uh, and not immediately being stopped by cops. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I saw myself reflected. I literally asked my real estate agent if I could visit neighborhoods later in the evening or the night because I wanted to be able to walk through a neighborhood and see if I felt safe uh, as a black man, if I felt, you know, like I was being, you know, profiled or any of that stuff. And, and Northside's still pretty diverse, and so you see a range of different kinds of people uh, all the time. Uh, it was important to me to live in a neighborhood that was LGBT-friendly, you know, as someone who is, you know, here, uh, currently partnered, um, you know, with a guy, you know, uh, that was just important. That, you know, so seeing the rainbow flags and stuff like that around was, like, pretty affirming. I don't think there's another Cincinnati neighborhood quite like Northside. So I think if you like Northside, it's really hard to find it anywhere else. <laughs> uh, and it reminded me of a neighborhood that was most like neighborhoods in other cities where I lived. So, you know, there were things about it that I was like, oh, like, okay, I, I like that. That kind of reminds me of Five Points in Atlanta. Or this kind of reminded me of, right. uh, uh, yeah, of um, the Piedmont area in, you know, uh, near Oakland. Uh, so there were just those kind of resonances that kind of um, worked for me here. And I love the architects. I mean, the, the architects are studying uh and I think that's one of the biggest pulls for me of Cincinnati. I, I love the architecture here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little about your work as a writer and author. Um, so you've written at least two full-length poetic memoirs, Red Dirt Revival, a poetic memoir in Six Breaths, which was published in 2003, and then Flirting in 2007. Um, and then you've written chapbooks. You've been widely anthologized. But let's talk about right. your first there's also, there's also predispositions, which was actually published in fifteen, and that that's an actual full length um, poetic memoir, and that's probably the more recent. Okay, great. What inspired <laughs> you to write your first book? Uh, it's interesting because I I don't know if it came out of inspiration or more sort of a calling and a sense of urgency. I was in a PhD program at. Stanford called Modern Thought and Literature. Um, my BA and my first master's were in philosophy. Um, I started doing some poetry on the circuit, some open mic stuff on the circuit in New York. Uh, the Wild, the Tea Parties, uh, Brooklyn Moon Cafe, that kind of thing. But just for fun, I was mostly like a philosophy guy. Um, when I moved to the Bay Area, uh, not too long after I got there, I tested positive for HIV. Um, This was in 1999, so coming up on 21 years. Uh, And the the doctor didn't give me a very good uh, diagnosis. I mean, it's obviously he's like, hey, I think think you have this super virus, and if we don't get some major help for you, you're not going to be around. 
And I'm someone who was, uh, in some ways, the, the child of Essex Temple, Melvin Dixon, uh, a Soto Saint, Joe Beam. Um, you know, those there was a black gay art movement in the late '80s uh, that I'm very much indebted to. And uh, I think I was indebted to because it was the first time I saw black gay queer men being out on camera. This is like tongue and tie was what. Jesse Helms tried to use to uh, to defund uh, PDS, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, these black gay men like being proud of themselves, like God forbid. Um, I didn't know so, that. So that was in response to Tongues Untied. Oh yeah, yeah, Tongues Untied. I mean, I think wow. he's trying okay. to get a lot. I think April Thorpe or yeah, like Jesse right, Helms right. trying to. Yeah. But, but yeah, but there was a major Tongues Untied was a major lever in Jesse Helms' protest against PBS. Um, and, and having it. And it didn't even show everywhere. There were some local affiliates that would not show Tongues and Tide, but I remember the importance it had for me. And yet I still hadn't produced my own work. I was kind of like living vicariously through these other people. Uh, when I was told I had a year to live, if I didn't get some super medication, um, you know, I, I thought about, you know, um, Marlon Riggs' Black is Black Ain't, which is like basically a documentary film. He's sort of documenting his death. And mm-hmm. I think in doing so, uh, is able to speak truth to power about, like, his life and experience. And so for the first time, I was, like, moved to take all this poetry, much of it which I've done before, and some stuff I was doing currently and put together a collection. Um, I loved collections like Sheree Moraga's uh, Loving in the War Years, uh, Gloria mm-hmm. Anzaldúa's uh, Borderlands La Frontera, uh, Essex Hemphill's Ceremonies, uh, Audre Lorde's Dami, um, these kind of like collections that were multi-genre in a sense, you know, essay, prose, poetry, lots of different things like that. Um, and so in some ways, like paying homage to them, decided like, you know, what if I put together, you know, if, if, if my life has to be a testament, a testimony, then what is the legacy I want to leave behind? What is the truth I want to share? And so Red Dirt Revival comes out of that space of urgency. Uh, Interestingly, which is a fact some people don't know, um, obviously it took a couple of years to put that collection together. And by the time it was ready for release, my health had gotten significantly better. Um, And there was a moment of truth in that process of, I can go back to being a philosophy guy, you know? (laughs) Um, Do I even publish it? Like, I literally question if I should at that point because I knew that I really disclosed and talked about some things like uh, childhood sexual abuse, um, you know, domestic violence that I witnessed between my parents, um, black homophobia and toxic masculinity before people were really talking about toxic masculinity. Um, you know, I talked about uh, sort of my relationship and my indebtedness to womanism and, and black women who sort of for me, set the foundation for my own acceptance as a queer, self-acceptance as a queer man. So, I mean, there were all these things, right, like that I was talking about, and I could just retract it and say, you know what, mm, it's okay. Like that was that was something I was going to do when I thought I wasn't going to be here. But in publishing it, I held myself accountable to the truth in those books, and I think that's what has consistently made Red Dirt Revival uh, a favorite <laughs> among a lot of people. I've heard people you actually call it timeless, which I've often not thought of it as that very timeless, but the fact that um, I think there was a Xavier graduate school class that was reading Red Dirt Revival this past semester um, and just 
a number of people really blown away by it. And I was like, oh, like, it's like, really? Like, almost 20 years later, it still has resonance for people that are still discovering it. So I think there is something about that. I, you know, I don't particularly think the writing there is my best writing. <laughs> but I think there's something about it. I often jokingly repair it, uh, compare it to Mary J. Blige. Uh, my life album. My life, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like well, he was going through it the most. Like that was the that was the album that everyone is just like, oh, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> like I like the I like the book better when you were in a lot of pain and going through it. Right. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. There's a rawness to it that people can identify with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think it's quite interesting. I wrote Red Dirt Revival with a very particular audience in mind. I wanted to speak truth to power for black queer men, um, you know, in some cases, black queer men who were struggling through HIV. And, you know, when the book first came out, in part because uh, uh, one of the people that helped me publish it was like, you know, white woman in the suburbs of Berkeley. Um you know, people started, book clubs started picking up the book and reading it. The professors started teaching it. And so this audience that I thought was, like, very narrow and specific, there were people that were able to connect to, if not the experiences in the book, the, the kind of emotion, the raw emotion that I think uh, comes mm-hmm. through a lot of the stuff in the book. Um, and that, that was really proud of that. Like, that, that was, you know, when you have that unintended audience, when you have people that catch, capture and read your work and go, like, oh, like, that, that was something very moving for me. Uh, I think I, I will share one thing about the book that a lot of people don't know, which is that its original title is a piece in the in Red Dirt Revival, which is called Suicide Journal. Uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, I was persuaded not to have the book called Suicide Journal because it, mm-hmm. it might be a bit too depressing for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if there's any one piece in the book that kind of summarizes the book itself, uh, it's that it's that piece. Um, uh, and I think when I read it today, it's like, oh wow, like yeah, I'm still, yeah, this is this is it, <laughs> like this is um, this is dealing with the shame, the stigma, the the hopefulness for the world, the idealism, the utopianism uh, of a of a world that's a little bit different. I think right now it's probably a moment I should go back and read it. Um, you know, when there's so much, uh, uh, I've had friends infected this this um, this uh, COVID nineteen. Um, I lost a friend this week, um, was the first person I knew personally from it. Um, you know, uh, I don't know about all the deaths and I don't know about the demographics or the epidemiology, but I know that like in, from the optics of it, I know black gay men are being hit pretty hard. And I think especially if they are immune impacted like myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's just been a psychological burden as well. It's, I, I shared with someone the other day that for a long time, because of the new medications, I felt like, oh, like, I'm good. Like, HIV is manageable. Like, I've been undetectable for all this time. And there's mm-hmm. something about COVID and coronavirus that has sort of triggered uh, those earlier days of, you know, you're you're at a, a deserving demographic to get something like this or that it's, mm-hmm. it's coming after you. It's going to get you. Um right. You know, because all of a sudden, like, you know, the, the medication you take for HIV doesn't really have an answer for this particular thing. So um, I think there's an emotional trigger there that I've had to work through psychologically. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm 
really glad that you mentioned that because, you know, you mentioned the timelessness of the book and, and that was my next question actually as someone who's been living with HIV um, and who is so um, closely connected to or, or um, was inspired by the Black Queer Arts Movement of the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this current moment of pandemic and wondering in addition to what you've already shared, are there lessons that we've learned about, like, kind of um, hysteria, um, you know, the kind of fear that goes along with a with a, uh, a moment like this in public health? What can the rest of us, what should we have learned um, from HIV and AIDS that we can apply to this moment? Maybe something around stigma and, you know, how not to stigmatize uh, certain groups. Do you have any additional additional thoughts on that? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I think one thing that was really closely a parallel for me was kind of the um, the kind of bold that I think about Nikki Giovanni's ego tripping, right? And so when coronavirus first hit, like, oh, we had black magic, we had vibranium, we had black girl magic and black boy joy and black right. get it. And I was just like, no, like, <laughs> like, like, no, that's like that's not true. Uh, and yet, like there's a tendency for us to try to live into that. And now, what we're starting to see is that poor people and people of color are are often the most vulnerable to this. That we're bearing the brunt of a lot of this. Um, and uh, so, there's that reminder of like, 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 in what ways do our pep talks and our ego tripping and our invulnerability like? hit the wall of reality that we, like, got to be careful and take care of ourselves and people in our community. The other thing is that, it's, it's you know, as someone who works in the education space, it has really shined a bright light. I, I mentioned, I think, hyper-visibilized the existing educational inequities. Um, I'm very involved in our neighborhood school. Um, you know, Chase Elementary has a chair of their LSDNC, which is the local school decision-making committee. And... Um, just sort of scrambling to figure out, like, yeah, this this idea, the concept of virtual learning, it, it's just a privilege, right? Like, I, I, if you are a single mother uh, of, you know, five kids, if you have a laptop at home, like, that's just one, and all five of them have different assignments. I mean, how does that work? How how is you yeah. know how does that in the equity landscape? Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not blind to uh, rule people in rural settings right now who don't even have access. I know when I go home to visit my mom in Arkansas, like there is no Wi-Fi, <laughs> it's a really bad connection. So I think about I think about that, and I think that this moment has exposed some really crude realities around inequity in our education system, uh, lack of access, and the hopefulness for me is that. Like, we kind of remember this time as, like, what was exposed for us to see and how do we work, you know, you know, if and when we get things, and I, I believe we will. I believe this will pass, and I hope, I hope as many people as possible are able to survive it, but I hope that it's also a charge to, to think about education differently, to be even more steadfast and vigilant in our efforts to, uh, ensure that um, that kids get what they need. I, I also, in some of my consultations, I do selective college admissions consulting. You know, 
as well as sort of working in low-income communities. And so I, I see both ends of the spectrum. Like, I see the kids that go to the private schools are like, you know, uh, you know there are all sorts of toolkits and people are able to hire individual tutors. And so they're not losing anything during this time. Uh, they have all sorts of innovations to ensure that they are staying up to speed, if not gaining in some ways, uh, through, like, virtual learning. And I think that's creating an even bigger gap between our, our kids, our black and brown kids that aren't getting that. Mm-hmm. And our poor white kids, you know. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point. Well, the last time I saw you was either three weeks or a month ago. Time is beginning to run together, but it was in the kind of period before we all understood, I think, the scope of coronavirus. Um, it was before the stay-at-home order went in place, and we were at the Mercantile Library, there to welcome T.H.A. Lehman and listen to him read from his book, Heavy. Um, it was so good to see you there, and it was exciting because you were there as part of a book club, and you all were right in front, um, showing him a lot of love. And it made me think a lot about literary community. Um, you're someone who creates community wherever you go, I get the sense. Um, and so... I was excited to just, I had heard about your book club, but it was just beautiful to, to see everyone there. Talk a little bit about what it's been like for you to find or create community here. And um, that can be kind of broadly understood. Uh, and I'm also particularly interested in this piece around literary community as well. Actually, I think it's a good question. I think, you know, I knew coming to Cincinnati that there were certain narratives and meta-narratives about my experience. I was outright told, and I may have shared this with you at one point, that like, oh, black black queer men in Cincinnati are closeted. Like, you, we don't do the out thing here. Um, and in fact, right. a lot of them probably, they get married, they have kids, they do that, you know, they do that thing and then like do their thing on the side. You know, there is no queer black life in Cincinnati, but there's black life and it's very straight and there is queer life and it's very white. <laughs> so, I, I knew coming here uh, that for me I saw it as an opportunity because I know there I know there were black queer folks here right like I knew that um, and I felt like there was a kind of gap in leadership and example to like someone like myself who could be vocal and visible and you know speak to truth to power in both spaces uh, in white queer space and, and black heterosexual dominant space. Um, and, you know, I remember actually the first gathering was just like bringing a bunch of people that I knew to start Cincinnati Black Pride and having 20 people in my, in my home, some of whom lived in the same neighborhoods and didn't even know each other. So that was just really great to see, like, I was able to create, um, uh, there's, there's gentrification. And then there's a term I've heard some people use called holding space. Uh, and I think when I bought my home in Northside, I bought it with the intention of it being a community space uh, in a neighborhood that was fast gentrifying, in a neighborhood where uh, if you look in certain spaces, you don't even, you wouldn't even think that black people live here still because like everything that's talked about and advertised is doing sort of white dominant culture. Um, mm-hmm. Even if there are progressive, it's still white dominant, right? And so, so I was yeah. very intentional about like buying a house in the middle of the block and, and having gatherings and meetings and when the weather is warmer and hopefully if we get past 
past COVID, like being creating that community space. I've I've done backyard concerts uh, during the North Side uh, market days. Um, you know, just other things that really bring community in and to solidify our presence and and resilience in this community. With regard to the literary community, you know, I, I just love to read books, and I, I realized that there were a lot of book lovers. Uh, interestingly, this Place of Men book club is named after a book series by Doug Cooper Spencer, who's a black gay man uh, born and raised in Cincinnati, uh, in more recent years moved with his partner to New York. Um, but, you know, was here, like, you know, I would, I would visit him and stay with him and his partner when I would visit Cincinnati. Uh, and, and, and this book was, I've, I've called This Place of Men My Brokeback Mountain. It's, it's a book that sort of chronicles uh, two uh, black men who grow up as teenagers uh, who fall in love with each other and have to struggle through a lot of people that don't want to see that happen um, and their own sort of self-doubt and, you know, everything else that goes along with that. So that book, you know, I felt like it was great that we, as a book club, we read his book. It's a trilogy. We read those books first because those stories are rooted in Cincinnati uh, and, you know, black gay men's lives in Cincinnati. Um, so that was a really great way to start the book club. But since then, like, we read, uh, we read um, Heavy. We read uh, uh, L. Lamar Wilson's uh, Back Religion, uh, Religion, rather. Um, we've read uh, Children of Bone and Blood. So we've gotten away from, like, literature that's specific to uh, sort of black game experience, but I think because we are there together, we are able to mm-hmm. share connections and things that maybe other people don't see. Um, and we've actually, like, there are a few authors in our book club. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, of late, there's been a, a little bit of interest, I think, you know, after Heavy, and um, and I always, like, get paused before I say his name. He's just, uh, is it is it Kiese? I believe so. Yes, yeah. I, I I'm like, in the same boat. I always kind of like just go for it, it you know. I'm like I'm just gonna be bold. This is what I think is the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, it's interesting. So like, the, I gave him a copy of my book, and then like he tweeted like the same night or later that you know, he was floored by my writing, and it was like, oh wow, <laughs> like wow, that mm-hmm. that's quite a compliment because he's quite a writer. Um, and then that I think generated interest. I'm like, oh, Tim, you have a book. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'm in this book club, and people don't even know about the work. So that's that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I don't really toot my horn about my own work. And I think when you're the friend of a person that they see, you know, it's like, it can be a little bit vulnerable to have that kind of group read your book, uh, especially mm-hmm. a book based in memoir and a lot of experiences. I mean, I think there's interestingly there are a lot of parallels to heavy. Uh, at a different time and, and some different things, but like I think that's what I really enjoyed about Heavy. I, I read it as a as an affirmation of of my poetic memoir um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and which is why I was so glad to see it do do well. And I think I think that experience of, of being at the Mercantile on the front row, uh, having him affirm us as a group, um, I think Cincinnati needed to see that. Like, yeah, I, I think. It was, it was more than just like, oh, we got to sit on them. It was like, I think our city needed to see that, like, oh, there are people that we don't, like, maybe that we forget about, <laughs> you know, that, that live here and, and have chosen to live here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that literary community has been really important to me. 
I think there are other spaces I would like. I, I think there there are sometimes I'm like, okay, it's all guys interpreting a book. Uh, there are times mm-hmm. when I feel like we should meet up with a women's book club or read something together, just because I think those those shared experiences across lines of gender can be really important. And I think I sometimes miss those literary spaces. Um, I also think like there have been instances like I recommended a poetry book and oh there are people that just weren't in the poetry or uh, people that weren't in the scholarly work uh, and so I'm I'm really I think for me it's an invitation because I am reading a lot more now to create other circles um, for people to come together and and discuss books but I will say this like I found a lot more of this in Cincinnati you know um, there are like of what book clubs. Yeah, like a lot more book clubs, a lot more like mm. reading circles and things like that. And I think it's something a lot of people here maybe take for granted. But Cincinnati's got a lot of weird, like it, it, it's a much more, I feel like the arts community here is very supportive of the arts. Um, I experience the arts in various ways a lot more than I did in Atlanta, uh, mm. where I think you have the kind of like black Hollywood thing that kind of like overshadows everything else, but like people aren't checking out the small galleries, right. <laughs> you know? And I think the fact that like, we don't have like a Holly, a black Hollywood here is like people are always looking for stuff. It's, I've, been, I've done, I've done some really I've, I've attended and visit some really incredible stuff here. And even when like the Cincinnati symphony was playing with ballroom bogers, like where does that. Yeah, happen? that was, I know I was so upset that I missed that. That looked incredible. It was amazing. It was literally like it was magical, and I was like so proud that it happened here in Cincinnati. I like uh, having a whole week tribute to Bayard Rustin uh, in this in 2018. There was an entire week dedicated to the work of Bayard Rustin all all around Southwest Ohio, and I was and my friends in New York were like, "Y'all are doing that?" I'm just like, "Yeah, yeah, we are kind of doing that, right?" Like, and right. What I like about Cincinnati, be, I think it's you can you can step into spaces and make things happen uh, fairly easily, you know. And I often think that there are, people don't take advantage of that enough. Um, but it's you know I found that it's been a great. I think the issue I have now is learning they know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like stepping back from a few commitments and just you know, being tired and drained and just saying, hey, I gotta kind of like you know watch my watch my commitments and, and sort of make sure that I have that balance in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, could you repeat the name of your book club, which I understand is also the name of the book, the first book that y'all read. I just want to make sure that yeah. listeners hear that so we can right. read it. Uh, which I, I highly recommend it because I think it's a, a, one, it was the way I was reintroduced to Cincinnati. I was at a table at a Black Pride in Atlanta and Doug Cooper Spencer, who was the author was at a table next to me. He asked me about my book. I asked him about his book. He says, well, I'm from Cincinnati. And then that led to, oh, like, I was born there. My early childhood was there. And he's like, oh, you might be interested in this book, which is based there, and Black Gay Men and this and that. And so I read that book, and it takes you through, like, not only are you reading about the experiences of these two boys, you're reading about the neighborhoods. You're reading about, you know, Lincoln Heights and uh, and Mount Adams, and and so in some ways I was learning about the city through this the experience of this book. So I think it's a uh, it it should be a treasure of of Cincinnati for the ways that it uh, impacted so many people outside of the city. Um, and the the book is called This Place of Men. Um, 
there's a second book that's the second part of the trilogy, called, which is called People Like Us, uh, and then a final uh, chapter of that book, which is called Leaving Gamara. Um, so it's like mm-hmm. a, a three parts in three parts, but I think a really important series of books to read. Wonderful. What are you reading now? What's on your bedside table or your your coffee table? So interesting because I've been like going back and reading a lot of um, like theory that I I hadn't read in a long time because I haven't been able to go out and look for new books. So I'm rereading Sharon Holland's Raising the Dead. Um, I'm reading Hazel Carby's Race Men, which is like I, I know I'm like going back to a little old school. Yeah, uh, I think classic. I'm really curious about the uh, the question of like masculinity, toxic masculinity. I'm going back to a lot of these, uh, a lot of these books that sort of talked about those things before there was sort of common language for it. So I'm also reading um, um, Philip Harper's um, "Are We Not Men: uh, Masculine Anxiety and the Problem of African American Identity." Um, and a lot of these books were, you know, when, when I was a Ph.D. student uh, and I, I left my Ph.D. program prematurely with a second master's, uh, I was writing a lot about black subjectivity, black male subjectivity, masculinity, hip-hop culture. So um, I miss being a scholar. I, I miss, like, teaching theory. <laughs> I think that, that's probably the gap in my literary world right now, is like to, to have books that I can share with people and, and, and sort of talk about and interrogate. And so I'm always looking also for like, it's been so long, I was in graduate school in the early O's, uh, so it's been like about 15 years since I've had regular introduction to like theory and text. But I'm really curious about like, what are people saying now? What is it? What is the, what is the mm-hmm. literary scholarship kind of look like? What are people reading, writing? I've kind of been away from it for a little bit. Um, so I'm hoping to reconnect. Uh, and I will say this, I am, I'm working on a novel. Um, Exciting. Can you share I, what it's about? Yeah, I started it actually back in 2001, uh, and it was called Motherless. Uh, it's based in Mississippi. I, I wanted to disconnect a little bit from my experience in Arkansas, but have some adjacent kind of experience. Uh, and it's essentially about two kids who grow up without their mom and the things that they do to both feel, F-I-L-L, and feel, F-E-L-L, that, F-E-E-L, <laughs> that void, uh, like what, what the experience of motherlessness can do to black children. Um, are the resiliencies that they gain because of that. And, I mean, I'm I'm a mama's boy, so in some ways it's totally not based on my experience because, you know, uh, to this day, like, I am I am all about mama. Um, but I think to try to imagine and, and trying to write a work of fiction, like what that experience of growing up may have been like without. Um, you know, also my daughter grew up without her, her mother, uh, and so just sort of as – as a parent sort of guiding her in part through life with a community of other people. Like what, what has that experience been like? Uh, what is that experience like? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, it's for the first time in a very long time, I'm excited about writing. I think for fiction, I'd always been afraid, like, you know, I hold up the Toni Morrison's and the, uh, <laughs> 
and the Dante Cuts and, the, you know, all these people that I admire as, as fiction writers. And I, I was afraid to write fiction because I was like, oh, I could stick with nonfiction because there's just a... That fear that we can just never be as good as the great, so why oh, try? Right. Like, I, I can never write like Baldwin, like ever, like, you know, so so let's not even try because I do have a, a bit of a, you know, I have my preferences and, and standards and I'm like, I, I want to write a beautiful book. So I think I've kind of gotten over that. I think even this period of being inside a lot more has kind of pushed me to be okay. Uh, it may be a book I write and I never publish. I don't know, but I'm, I'm, I'm writing again. And that's pretty, that's been pretty exciting. That's wonderful. Tim, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn so much. And I also just feel, I think it's the rare person that you can have a conversation of this depth over the phone and still have it feel very warm and exciting. So just thanks mm-hmm. for being down for that. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you. This has been a, a great opportunity. It's interesting. I I commented to someone that um, there are times when it feels a little awkward because when I go to Chicago or Atlanta or D.C., like I get stopped. People know who I am. I'm like, like, I don't really feel like much of a person of influence in Cincinnati. And I know I am. I'm becoming that. I've only been here a little over two years. But part of part of why I moved back is because I want people to say, like, this is one of ours. Like, yeah. this is somebody that left this place and went out in the world and did these great things and, and came back. And they're one of ours. And it's, it's, it's one of the reasons I celebrate your work and talk you up wherever I am. Uh, because I know you made a decision to come back as well. And I'd like to think that we can create a community of writers and thinkers and activists that I mean, I think if any place can very easily and quickly become that, like, that pub, <laughs> like, Cincinnati mm-hmm. can, can do that. I mean, a lot of writers can't afford to live on the coast anymore. Like, That's right. I mean, it's just, That's it's right. just a lot of factors of, like, oh, you want to go to a really interesting, neat place where there's some pretty cool people? Uh, you know, this could be one of those places. And so, you know, I'm I'm certainly an ambassador now for Cincinnati. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful to have people like yourself here and all the places that we've crossed. And I mean, I, we, I, I continue to learn other people that you also know that I know. Right. <laughs> they are like these of separation. And I think even just a symbolic, you finding a CD that I had signed back in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we probably would. my daughter. Right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the well, question. Thank you for taking time to talk with me. And I know that our listeners um, will enjoy. Thank you for listening. Please join mm-hmm. us next time for more conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. I hope you're staying healthy and safe. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.